great to see a Purpose Church. Uh, before we get into our study today, I'd like to give you a, a report on our campus improvements. And you'll see behind me on this uh, time lapse a part of the work that's going on in our worship center, particularly. We've made some great uh, pro progress there with the renovations, as you can see behind me. And uh, we've reconfigured the, the, the stage. Uh, with safety and, and accessibility upgrades. Uh, we've been able to enlarge uh, the choir and the orchestra loft. Uh, we've added curtains to increase the flexibility of the space so it, it, it works with different audiences. Uh, we've improved lighting and audio and visual, uh, updated the seating and the carpeting, as you'll see here in, in just a moment, uh, balcony lighting and handrails uh, for added safety uh, in the balcony. And, you know, I just really want to ask you if you would uh, please pray for the approval process uh, from the county fire department so that we can proceed with finishing the construction. Once we get that approval, then we can, can finish up the construction and get back into the worship center just as soon as possible. But one thing that is such a blessing, and I want to thank you so much for, is you've given over $1.4 million dollars in our Building for Generations campaign. You've already given over $1.4 million of the $1.5 million cost. Uh, so the worship center renovations are going to be close to being completely paid off uh, by the time we are back in the worship center. Now, during the pandemic, we've also done new campus signage, uh, including, including the big word purpose on the side of the B building, if you've seen that. Uh, the signage has resulted in people visiting our church uh, almost every week uh, for, the, for the first time. Uh, people that drove by our church for years and didn't notice us or weren't drawn to check us out before, uh, well, because of that sign, they're showing up. Uh, we've put a new 120-ton air conditioner cooler for the worship center, new roof and heater and air conditioning units for the B building, uh, H building upgrades, both exterior and interior uh, the same for the D building and our central and north parking lots have been repaved, repaired, slurry sealed, restriped, and made improvements uh, to our three outdoor basketball courts used by the community throughout the week. And, and then, as you see here, this week, um, we responded uh, to the south parking lot had a sinkhole, if you've and there the last few weeks, you see that giant sinkhole, which I think went down to the center of the earth, uh, uh, that, that sinkhole there. And, uh, and so we responded, rather than just fix the sinkhole, we thought, let's go ahead and just like we had done in the north lot and in the central lot, let's go ahead and just repave the entire um, south lot with new asphalt and restriping so that then all the uh, parking lots are done, and we keep up on that kind of uh, maintenance. So it has just been a thrill, all the things that uh, God has allowed us to accomplish. Uh, praise Him and thank you for your faithfulness throughout the pandemic. And now just one other thing I want to mention, a couple of exciting guest speakers uh, that have been with us uh, through the years on our pastoral staff. Uh, Josh Hoosman, uh, who was our junior high and young adult pastor, he is going to be here a week from today. I consider Josh and, and national church magazines do the same. One of the top leaders, young leaders 
in America uh, today, church leaders, just absolutely phenomenal how God has used him in Indiana. And then mark your calendars with June 5th, Chris Brown, who used to be our high school pastor. I consider Josh one of the top leaders in the country. I consider Chris one of the top speakers in the country. And just by the way, I consider our very own Pastor Eric Holmstrom to be a combination of both of these, uh, kind of the leadership skills of Josh Hoosman with uh, the speaking skills of Chris Brown. So uh, mark those. Those are going to be great events uh, coming up here, and I wanted you to know about them. Well, we continue our series now, Seeing Jesus Through the Eyes of Luke. And again, uh, in your daily readings, you're reading through verse by verse, or in your life groups, you're studying a broader part of these passages. And today, uh, we, this week, we, we're in Luke chapters 10 and 11, so those two chapters. But then I always preach something uh, from uh, those chapters. And so today, we're going to talk about living like Jesus in a broken world. How do we live like Jesus in, in, in a broken world? And let's start with this. Put that down for a catch. A little farther out. I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. But we've been doing this all night. Nothing. All right. That's your word.
brother and the baptizer. <laughs> you are the Lamb of God, yes? I am. Depart from me. I am a sinful man. You don't know who I am and the things I've done. Don't be afraid, Simon. I'm sorry. We, we've waited for you for so long, we believe. But my faith, I'm sorry. <laughs> Lift up your head, fisherman. <laughs> what do you want from me? Anything you ask, I will do. Follow me. Matthew 4, 19, Jesus said, come follow me and I will send you out to fish for people in a broken world filled with broken people. Uh, let's be looking this week. I don't believe God's going to waste this message. He's going to use it in our lives and, and be watching. I'm going to be watching who's a broken person, a hurting person that Jesus wants us to reach out to and share compassion and love uh, like he did this coming, this coming week. And so we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan found in Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. Uh, a basic point of this message, a big idea, is that you cannot separate your relationship with God from your relationship with other people. Mother Angelica said, saints are ordinary people who do what they do for the love of Jesus. Say what they must say without fear, love their neighbor even when they are cursed by him, and live without regret over yesterday or fear of tomorrow. So we're going to talk about living like Jesus in a broken world. Five different responses to a broken man that we're going to encounter here in this story. Uh, the first response is the expert in the law saw this broken man as a problem to discuss. Luke 10, verse 25, on one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He was an expert in the Old Testament Jewish law. And by justify himself, what he means here is that he wants to narrow down the definition of neighbor as much as possible in order to make it easier to keep. Uh, narrow it down to just the people that are as like him or similar to him as possible. Just narrow it down to the people like him and who he likes so that it'll be easier to love his neighbor. 
But what Jesus is going to do here is he, he's going to make the definition of a neighbor broader, very broad, as broad as possible, broader, not narrower. Now, one of the best ways to get nothing done is to discuss it. And I don't want to pick on this expert of the law too much because, boy, I've had my share of talking about things and not getting around to doing things. Uh, discussing things has become a substitute for doing. On social media, we think that posting an opinion about something is like just as good as actually doing something about a problem. If I just post an opinion about it, that's equivalent to doing something about it. Our chief of staff, uh, Pastor Greg, is having those of us in leadership read a book called Death by Meeting. Death by Meeting. But I haven't had a chance to read it yet because I've been in too many meetings. Uh, and so this expert of the law wanted to pull Jesus into an abstract discussion on neighborliness. And Jesus instead is going to give him a concrete, practical example of what it means to be a neighbor. Uh, this guy was more comfortable talking about theories, and, and, and I'm guilty of this too, I know. Uh, and he was nervous when it came to practical applications. Want to talk about it and not do anything about it. He wanted to be a comfortable spectator and not a concerned participant. So for him, the broken man that we're about to meet was just a problem uh, to discuss. And then we come to the, the robbers. To the robbers, he was a victim to exploit. Verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And we assume this is a Jewish man. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Can I just take a little tangent here and say, you know, one of the most disturbing trends in our society is not seeing robbery as exploitation. There's this tendency in our culture and society today to just kind of say, oh, well, you know, as long as you don't hurt somebody, uh, robbery is no big deal. But it is a form of exploitation. When you take more than you give, that is exploiting other people. For example, the big rage now is stealing catalytic converters. You've heard about this all across the country. It's not just in Southern California. It's all across the country. People are stealing catalytic converters. And, and I'm sure they, if they care about even rationalizing it, but if they do, they might say something, well, well, we're just sticking it to the rich people, just sticking it to the rich. But you know what? I haven't known a single rich person to have their catalytic converter stolen. I'm sure it's happened, but I, I personally haven't met them. Uh, and even if it did happen, the rich can afford to have their catalytic converter stolen. Everyone I know that's had their catalytic converter stolen is either a widow or they're poor or they're middle class and they can't afford. It's a, it's a huge hurt in their lives um, to have to deal with that. It's exploitation, pure and simple. Now, we're all in danger of exploiting other people. Uh, whenever we um, um, use things uh, and, and, and we're, we're to use things and love people, instead of loving things and using people. Whenever I'm tempted to love things, then I will be tempted to use people. So instead, Jesus is saying, we need to use things and love people, not love things and, and use people. Warren Wearsby writes, 
God gave us things to use and people to love. If we start loving things, we will start using people. And this is exploitation. If we take from others but fail to give in some way, we are exploiting. Jesus Christ never exploits a person. He always gives back more than than he asks. And then we come to the priests and the Levite. And to them, this broken man was a nuisance to avoid. It says in verse 31, a priest, or kind of like a pastor, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. And so to a Levite, this would be a leader in the church, uh, the equivalent uh, today to us, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now, Jericho was a priestly city. And of course, Jerusalem was the center of of the Jewish faith. And so a lot of priests and Levites would often be on the road between Jericho and Jerusalem. And you can imagine the excuses these guys would have. I've used them myself. I've been serving at the temple. Uh, I've, I've done my part. That might, be, that might be one excuse that they've had. Now, we're supposed to serve at church, but it's no substitute for being compassionate to people uh, during the course of the week. Uh, Matthew 9, verse 13, uh, Jesus said, but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. We're to serve God in the temple, serve God in the church, but not use that as an, an, exception, as an excuse to say that we can't be compassionate to people that God brings in our path uh, during the week. Or another excuse that he may have used was, I've been away from home and I need to hurry. Now, we're supposed to take care of our family, but that also is not a substitute for being compassionate to those outside of our family. Or here's one, it's not my fault, so why do I have to deal with it? And one of those famous uh, lines in the Bible, Genesis 4, verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied, am I my brother's keeper? Now, in this case, it was Cain's fault that Abel was missing because he had killed him. But sometimes we say, well, it's not my fault. I, I, don't, I don't have to deal with it. Like, you know, or your kids will say, I didn't make that dish dirty, so I don't have to clean it. And no, you're part of the family. And part of that is to do the dishes, the ones you made dirty and the, uh, the ones that other people have, uh, ha- have used. And so we are to say that whether something's our fault or not, we're still called by Jesus to show compassion to people. Or here's one, let somebody else do it. Uh, The priest may have said, well, I know the Levite's coming after me, so let him deal with this. Or the Levite might have said, well, the priest didn't do anything, so I'm not going to do anything. James 4, 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. And then another um, person in the story is the inn host, uh, the host of the inn. And to him, the broken man was a customer Uh, to serve. He was paid to serve. He got money uh, in order to serve this man. Now, there is nothing wrong with that. Uh, In our jobs, we are paid to do a particular job that serves other people. The Bible says that we should serve people in our jobs as if we were serving Jesus. Even if we're paid to serve, we should do it as unto Jesus. Ephesians 6 verse 7, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people. Uh, Paul wrote to the Colossians. He said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart 
as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you'll receive an inheritance for the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ that you are serving. And then we come to the Samaritan. Um, we call him the good Samaritan. We'll see why in a moment. Uh, the, to the Samaritan, this broken man that he encountered on the road of life was a neighbor to serve. Now, as soon as you heard that he was a Samaritan in Jesus' story, the Jewish listeners would have been absolutely startled. I mean, in his daily morning prayer, a Pharisee uh, would sometimes pray, thank you, God, that I was not born a woman, a Gentile, or a Samaritan. You imagine the arrogance of that. Oh, God, thank you that I wasn't born a Samaritan. Some Pharisees prayed that uh, Samaritans would be excluded from the resurrection, that, that they would not go to heaven. Uh, in, in that culture, uh, a Gentile could become a Jewish proselyte, that is, a kind of a, a follower of the Jewish faith, but not a Samaritan. A Gentile, a non-Jew could, all non-Jews could, with the exception of the Samaritans. Uh, that explains what we see in the story of Jesus with the Samaritan woman. John 4, verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now, how did this family feud? How did this all get started? Well, here's a map of Samaria and Israel at, at the time of Jesus. And in 722 um, BC, the northern part of, of Israel, called Israel, the southern part was called Judah, um, the, the northern part was called Israel. And in 722 BC, the northern kingdom was conquered by the Assyrians. And what the Assyrians did is they deported 20,000 Jews from uh, the northern area, now known as Samaria, and they took them uh, to another country or back to uh, Assyria, and then they took 20,000 foreigners and they took their place. This was a way, the, a custom they had when they conquered a country. And so because these foreigners would begin to intermarry, with the Jews, uh, Jewish people that were there, it would produce a mixed race. And so the pure Jews of Judah would have nothing to do with them. Uh, so as a result, the Samaritans, uh, they established their own temple, their own priesthood, and their own religious ceremonies. Um, they claimed, for example, that Mount Gerizim, which is right there, was the proper place to worship. Instead of, for the Jews, it was uh, Mount Zion, which was in Jerusalem. And so the Samaritan uh, that encounters this man, this Jewish man, along the road, there's all this history, there's all this background, but this Samaritan did not permit either racial or religious barriers to hinder him from helping a Jewish victim. Uh, he, he did not blame the injured man uh, for the collective attitudes of either race, Samaritans or the Jewish people. And he didn't use that as an excuse to do nothing. Uh, let's look at the four parts of his ministry. First of all is uh, compassion. We pick it up with verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. Now this this word in the original Greek that's translated here as pity, sometimes it's translated compassion, uh, sometimes as pity, usually, almost always in the Bible, 
This word is used about Jesus having compassion towards other people. Matthew 9, 36, here's a couple of examples. When he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Another example is Matthew 14, verse 14. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. So usually this Greek word is used for Jesus having compassion towards us or compassion towards other people. And the only place you use it, you see it in the Bible, where it's used as a person having compassion for somebody else is here in the story of the Good Samaritan. You have it in the prodigal son story where the father has compassion towards his uh, runaway son. And then also the dishonest servant that had a huge debt forgiven by the king in Matthew chapter 18. It says that the king had uh, compassion on him. So God has compassion on us, but in these three stories, the prodigal son, good Samaritan, and the merciful king, God has compassion on us, and we should now turn around and have compassion on other people as well. 1 John 4, 19 says, We love, we have compassion, because he first loved us. Nelson Mandela writes, Our human compassion binds us to one another, not in pity or patronizingly, but as human beings who have learned how to turn our common suffering into hope for the future. And so he has compassion. Number two, he makes contact. He, he, he puts himself in a position to have contact, to connect with this man. It says in Luke 10, 34, just the first four words, it says, he went to him. And there's such power in those four, four words. He made contact. He saw a broken person. This week, I don't believe God's going to waste this message. For me or for you, we're, we're going to see somebody. And, 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 and God's going to bring this message to our mind, the example of the Good Samaritan. And God's going to lead us to some broken people at school or at work or in our family or in our neighborhood or, or some other context. God's going to show us that person. We're going to remember the story and we're going to put it into practice. And, and, and so he made contact with him and think of the excuses that, that he could have made. I can think of the excuses I would have made. Hey, there might still be robbers in the area. If this guy got, you know, mugged, they might still be around. I got to get out of here. I shouldn't wait and take care of him because I, I got to protect myself. Or you could think it's a trap. They've got this guy pretending to be hurt here and then his buddies are in the bushes and they're going to attack me if I stop to help him. Or he's too far gone. I can't do anything for him anyway. There's little that I, that I can do, so why don't I keep moving? Love does not look at the obstacles. Love looks for the opportunities. Love doesn't make excuses or say, here's why I shouldn't do it. Love says, this is an opportunity where I should do something. And then number three is care. In verse 34, he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Uh, the expert in the law was willing to talk, but was unwilling to act. The Samaritan acted even though he was, he was taking his life in his own hands. He put himself in danger. Uh, he put his security at danger, his safety at danger in order to help. 
And then number four is cost. It says in verse 35, the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. What did it cost him? It cost him his time. Maybe he was late for something because he stopped to help this man. It cost him his security. It, 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 there's some danger involved in this, his safety. And it cost him some money. It cost him financially time and his comfort zone, his safety, his security. But what did he gain? Well, he didn't gain anything except for the joy that comes from living like Jesus in a broken world. That's what he gained. Didn't get, gain anything you could see, but he gained that joy from living like Jesus in a broken world, and that joy is available for us as well. J.H. Jowett writes, ministry that costs nothing accomplishes nothing. Now, the Good Samaritan is a picture of what Jesus did for us. Uh, Jesus found us as lost sinners on the road of life, half dead, nobody cares about us. People didn't help us. Religion couldn't help us. So he has compassion on us and helped us when nobody else would. He entered into this world as a man and paid the full cost on the cross in order for us to be saved. Uh, this is what Jesus did for us, but also what Jesus demonstrates for us. We are to do the same thing he did for us as broken people, we are to turn around and do for the broken people in our world. Here's the main point in verses 36 and 37. Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Now there's still some resistance in his heart. He can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. And so he says instead, the one who had mercy on him. There's still resistance in his heart. But oh, let's not have resistance in our hearts. Jesus told him, go and do likewise and let us go and do likewise as well. Every little thing we do this week, every little word of encouragement, every act of compassion, God sees and he'll reward us someday as we minister like he did to the people of our broken world. You know, today is uh, Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee. Uh, today, Sunday, February 6th, is the 70th anniversary of her accession uh, to the throne. And Queen Elizabeth once said, it's worth remembering that it is often the small steps, not the giant leaps, that bring about the most lasting of change. And Jesus said in Mark 9, 41, Truly, I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. Uh, let's close our time with this example of a modern day Good Samaritan. When I started this clinic, I was hoping 
that more doctors would follow my lead and join me maybe even part-time, but no one did. And in fact, over the last eight years, it seems like I've become somewhat of a pariah or an outcast. When I used to work in the ER, I was making good living, very comfortable. We saw a number of uninsured patients, and uh, I recognized that a lot of these patients were, were my neighbors. Some of them literally my neighbors. People like barbers, sawmill operators, workers at convenience stores, mechanics. I had to see these people every day who I know could be treated more compassionately, more cost-effectively in another setting. I felt like basically even though I was working in the ER, I was walking around them and I was not being a neighbor to them. I kept asking myself the question, is this what a good Samaritan would do? I really sensed in my heart that God wanted me to provide medical care for these people outside of the ER. And who was I to question what God wanted to do? Uh, about eight years ago, I opened Patmos Emergency Clinic uh, to provide care for the uninsured. On average, I have about 5,000 patient visits a year. About 60% of those don't have insurance. About 25% uh, have uh, high deductible commercial insurance. So how are you feeling today? Well. Did you take your blood pressure medicine this morning at all? No. No? Okay. All right. A lot of people thought what I was doing was foolish, and they probably were right. Uh, in the eyes of the world, I think it is foolish, but God has a, a different strategy. He tends to choose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Taking care of the uninsured, that's the ultimate foolishness in healthcare today. The last eight years trying to more authentically be a follower of Christ is um, a lot of times a struggle. Struggle financially. I've foregone quite a large amount of income. The struggles of recognizing that my skills are deteriorating from the ER. But the biggest cost really would probably be with my kids because I've foregone putting money aside for their college education. My kids didn't have a choice in that. And that, that, that bothers me. I wonder sometimes if it's really worth it. I could work maybe a shift or two in an ER a week and do as well financially as I am now and have a lot more time off to do other things, spend time with my family. Don't know. How you doing? I've been worried about my toe. This morning, it was swelled and throbbing real bad. You weren't going to go to the ER. Uh, the reason you weren't going to go to the ER is why. I mean, that thing needs to be expensive. fixed. Expensive. Hey, I'm being garnished for 12 years ago. Well, let's take a look at it. That's tender right there. Is it still sharp out press there or just No, well, it's just in certain places. I'm going to get you basically. 20 days worth of this medicine to take twice a day. All right. Let me get you the work excuse. No. <laughs> <laughs> Joe was a guy who um, got good care. He wouldn't have gotten good care. That's, that's satisfying. He would have been another invisible casualty of our healthcare system. Somebody who would have fallen through the cracks and somebody I was able to help.
Take it easy now. I'll do it. All right, stay safe. It's been worth the risk, I think, because I kind of afraid of the type of person I would have become had I continued doing what I was doing, to become more hardened and callous and willingly blind. <laughs>